You've dived into the world of Web3 and blockchain, grappling with the kind of complex governance structures that can make or break a decentralized organization. You've engaged with thought leaders, innovators, and the very coders weaving the fabric of this new digital landscape. Through vigorous debate and scrutiny, you've seen how governance models can evolve from concepts to systems that genuinely empower and structure communities. Now, we turn our lens to the intricate workings of the governance of, in the era of Web3. It's a realm where every decision can ripple through networks, where the balance of power and participation is constantly in flux, and where the very essence of organizational structure is being redefined. I'm Doug Heinzman. I'm the Chief Catalyst at the Blockchain Research Institute. Welcome back to W3B Talks, an ongoing discussion about how Web3 and blockchain will impact business and society. In this episode, we're going to do a deep dive into the pivotal role of governance in the nurturing and steering of Web3-era organizations and helping them move towards their collective goals. Joining me today is Alfred Tom. Alfred's the CEO of Wivity, a company that's building a new governance framework for Web3 infrastructure. He's also the executive director at OMA3 and president of Lumion Foundation. Alfred brings to the table decades of experience in crafting governance frameworks that don't just function but flourish, fostering environments where collaboration and consensus aren't just buzzwords, but the very pillars of community and progress. His insight into why organizations succeed or falter in this new digital frontier are invaluable, making him the ideal guide for today's exploration. Together, we'll discuss the successes and stumbles of various organizations, how governance can work in the Web3 era, the rise of collaborative standards, and the vital role that foundations, associations, and consortia play in this unfolding narrative. So buckle up. We're about to embark on a journey to the heart of what makes or breaks digital entities of tomorrow. Welcome to the podcast, Alfred. How are you? I'm doing well, Doug. I appreciate you having me. Well, thanks so much for joining me. And this is a conversation that, frankly, is overdue. It's also one that not a lot of people spend nearly as much time on as they really should. And you know, you know this from the inside because this is this is your work. This is your profession. You you work with governance, but so many of us take the topic of governance for granted. You know, most of us have worked in organizations that by virtue of the fact that it is an organization where we have common employment contracts and hierarchical management structures, we kind of take the concept of decision-making and governance and stakeholder alignment for granted. But as soon as we start to try to get various organizations to behave in concert and to coordinate their activities and to collaborate, then governance starts to become a lot more complicated. And this is, and this has been true for a very, very long time. What's really interesting is that, that Web3 and blockchain and the related technologies kind of change the landscape a little bit, don't they? Absolutely. So decentralized governance has been around for a long time, right? So League of Nations, United Nations, uh, nonprofits, industry standards groups, but I think what's unique about Web3 is the scale, right? So some predictions have there are billions of people uh, participating in Web3 by, let's say, 2031, 2032, around there. And 
And a lot of those people are going to be participating in governance and a lot of this infrastructure. So, so how do you decentrally manage all those people in your governance process? Um, I think that's one big difference. Um, and another big difference I think is Web3 has this uh, tolerance for anonymity or, or pseudonymity. So, and then how do you manage governance in the world where you really don't know who's behind a wallet or who's behind a token? Uh, so those are, I think those are the two challenges of, of Web3. Uh, and then decentralization has its own slew of challenges as well that, you know, have been around for a long time. Okay, so there's, there's a whole bunch there to unpack. Uh, let's, let's kind of break this down to the basics. So most of us, at the very least, are involved once every four to five years in a collective societal governance project that we call elections. We all express our, our wants and and that collective will, in theory, is, uh, is, is assembled, and, and some group of people then make decisions on our behalf, and we as stakeholders have, have had input into the system. But outside of that direct experience, and, and once again, aside from the, the ones we take for granted in the, in the work that we do kind of daily and interact with managers and second-line and third-line managers, you know, most of us don't kind of think about governance. Um, so the, the vision that you're painting is seems to be a bit of a different world that you, you think that we're going to have many more opportunities, perhaps even on a daily basis, where we're more consciously engaged in governance processes. Yeah, I think it's more of a, a pick and choose for each individual. Um, you know, a, a lot of large families, they have their own ad hoc governance in terms of where they're, what they're going to do, where they're going to go on a vacation, you know, how they're going to spend their money. Um, we call that dictatorship you know. in my family. So. <laughs> well, you know, with your, your brothers and sisters and, you know, extended family, if you're going to have a big family gathering, uh, there is a certain governance there. Um, and then Web3, I think individuals will take a attachment to a certain project, right? So maybe they got in early in a certain project and they'll be active in the governance in that one, but maybe not in another. And so I think people will pick and choose which projects that they get actively involved with. Um, yeah, you see it today with nonprofits. Uh, you know, people join nonprofit organizations, get on the board or, or start getting involved in the management of that nonprofit. And so nonprofits are, are very decentralized in terms of how they operate. Yeah, that's so. That's that's interesting, and I, su I suspect that that's true of a lot of organizations that don't overtly have kind of P and L and 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 fiduciary responsibility, right? That that uh, you know you're kind of coordinating the activities of people that in many situations are actually volunteers to the process and contributing their their time, uh, which I I guess. You know, leads to a different, a different way to think about governance. So, in the Web three world, we have some much more tangible examples of governance because we've got this this new construct, right? We've got this concept of a token, and tokens can be, uh, you know, demonstrably digitally scarce, and so they they afford us this mechanism and. We see lots and lots of different kinds of organizations that become possible because of this infrastructure. Uh, so, 
you know, you've already mentioned a few decentralized organizations, right? Nonprofits being a, a really good example, but there's, there's, uh, you know, the United Nations, the League of Nations, all those things. Those are all decentralized organizations to, to a very large extent that have the challenge of coordinating the interests of multiple stakeholders. And in the Web3 world, we have this, this interesting kind of new construct that we call a, a DAO or a distributed autonomous organization. And, and, the autonomous part of that, at least in my experience, kind of varies from organization to organization. But by and large, they are decentralized. And uh, but there's protocol DAOs and venture DAOs and grant DAOs and social DAOs, philanthropy DAOs. There's collector DAOs where groups of people, you know, there's one, there's a group of people that bid on the U.S. a copy of the U.S. Constitution, and and they collectively raised forty million dollars to try to to try to buy a copy of the Constitution. And um, there's also research DAOs where both individuals and very large companies are binding together to focus research efforts in the pharmaceutical space on very specific and, and niche targets. So we see these really interesting new co constructs that are being enabled by the networking collaborative technologies that we have to coordinate you know, people's efforts. But, but Web3 is now giving us these tools to allow us to, you know, basically vote on stuff, right? To to create that that a mechanism to to align that stakeholder interest to distribute value in ways that are much more aligned to the success or failure of the project. So these are some really interesting new tools. So where where do you see the low hanging fruit being? Uh, and if you kind of look at what's happened over the last twenty years, where where the where's the best place to apply this this new governance technology? I think it, the ones that really matter are the the big projects that have large TVLs um, and lots of participation. So Uniswap, you know, is a, is a big organization, a big DAO. MakerDAO is big, right? The, one of the OGs of DAOs in, in the Web3 space. And those organizations have the huge amount of scale. And they also have all these other non-linearities like trying to make the token price go up, right? So, you know, they have a governance token that increases in value over time. And that has implications to the governance model and how effective the governance is. So I think there's a lot of examples of that causing issues with uh, an organization uh, in terms of centralization, in terms of apathy and, and whatnot. And I think new governance concepts and frameworks need to be introduced into those systems to make them run more efficiently. And you know, I think that we could take, take that experience from the non-Web3 world, corollaries, essentially. So that that's really interesting. Uh, there are... I would say there are some cautionary tales there. So as you pointed out, there are situations, whether it's the appreciation of token value or it's apathy and disengagement of certain parts of the community, or it's the concentration of power in a relatively small number of, of people. That means that there is not broad-based uh, stakeholder alignment that would make the organization healthy. So there are obviously some challenges with really fine-tuning and optimizing governance, even if we have access to 
this new token-based tool set that are, is allowing new kinds of governance and new kinds of organizations. Are there any kind of ob- obvious cautionary tales, examples out there of governance gone wrong and lessons learned from those situations? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's lessons gone wrong necessarily, but areas for improvement, right? Okay, um, fine. Let's go with that. One big debate in Uniswap that caught a lot of people's attention is their decision on what bridge to use to bridge over to Binance Smart Chain. That was sometime last year. And a lot of the VCs are involved with Uniswap, funded Uniswap, and they have a lot of tokens. And there are a lot of people who just care about Uniswap as a community member or user. And there's, you know, they went through a certain process where somebody posted, hey, I think we should use this bridge protocol to bridge over to Binance Smart Chain. And then other people suggested their favorite bridges. And the process is a little bit ad hoc. And there was a lot of bad feelings that had happened over that. So I think in the area of process, I think you know DAOs can learn from, let's say, industry standards groups in terms of the process they run to decide on standards. I mean, in fairness to Uniswap, they had a very short time limitation on their implementation. So they probably need to do something a little more ad hoc. But a lot of decisions, you know, you need to take some time on and you need to follow a process that gets you the best outcome. So that's interesting. So there's you make a very good point that Governance is about more than just the mechanisms and the how voting rights are allocated and what kinds of things that people vote on to express their interest. But there's this whole process layer that is in and of itself and by its nature part of the stakeholder alignment process. And so that, that's a really interesting part of this. When you're thinking about establishing modern Web3 capable or enabled governance structures, how do you think about, you know, you're working with a brand new organization, they, they say, hey, we want to bring this group together to accomplish this goal, we need some governance technology, we need some governance guidance. How do you engage in that discussion with those groups to say, okay, here's the, the technology suite, and here are the the best practices for, you know, procedures and processes is how do you have that conversation? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people think that decentralization is a disadvantage, right? It's, it's slow, it's cumbersome, things don't happen very quickly. Um, but it does have a superpower and that superpower is diversity and diversity of thought, um, diversity of power. Uh, so centralized organizations, they're really good at picking the direction and moving very quickly. Um, if that direction is wrong, they can pivot pretty quickly and move in a different direction. Uh, but decentralized organizations like industry standards bodies, hundreds of companies uh, are working together to create uh, a technology or a standard. And if you don't harness it correctly, you're not going to take advantage of that diversity of thought, right? And so the processes have been created in industry consortia to take advantage of the fact that you have these independent organizations, you know, with all their different perspectives, trying to solve a solution, uh, trying to solve a problem and come up with a solution. Um, so when I go to infrastructure projects that want to build something, I encourage them to follow this process that 
know, allows everybody to suggest different alternatives, suggest their use cases upfront before starting to propose a solution. You, when, you, when you propose a solution, you, you tend to single track on that solution. It sets, um, it sets a certain bar, right? Or it, it, um, you're anchoring on a certain solution to use a, a negotiation term. Um, you know, what's, what we should do is have a brainstorming phase before you start pro- proposing that solution, uh, which is very similar to in the design world, product design world, where IDEO had their process, right? They have a certain process of coming out with their best outcome for a product design. And that process starts with, with brainstorming without solutioning. And so consortia have adopted that same you know, technique in that same process. So that's, that's just one example of process. Yeah, I think this is a really good example of um, well, the, the whole the whole area of standards is a, is a really interesting example of of the governance challenge uh, because a lot of the other DAO and similar sort of organizations that you know we've kind of just briefly touched on, uh, you know, they they do have an overt interest in a common goal, whether it is, you know, developing a piece of code or it's uh, earning a whole bunch of money or it's, you know, building a new drug for a, a very specific niche, ethnic Scaling group, a network. Whatever. But in the yeah. standard space, you know, you often have a bunch of big companies that, you know, during their day jobs, they're all trying to compete with each other, right? And to you know, fight over the same pool of revenue and put each other out of business. Uh, but every once in a while, they, they get together and they decide to to check their cards, their business cards at the front door. They go through the, the pantomime of, um, you know, anti-competitive, you know, dialogue at the beginning of each meeting just to make sure that they don't get arrested for collusion. And, uh, and then they kind of get to work balancing this idea that if by doing work together and agreeing on standards, all boats rise, and at the same time, in the back of their mind, trying to figure out how my boat's going to be better than your boat. So you've got this this really interesting mixture of motivations. Um, as And, and that, that this has been true, especially in the technology space, for you know the better part of the last 50 years. In the Web3 era, does, does anything change because these organizations now have access to these new kinds of, of Web3-enabled processes and Web3-enabled you know, governance models and, and token-based voting systems? Yeah, I, I think it does. I think Web3 has introduced a whole new set of tools that any decentralized organization can use to solve issues that they've had over the decades. Um, so one obvious issue is the tragedy of the commons. Um, the idea where when you're creating a standard, you know, only a few companies do most of the work to create the standard and then everybody benefits. Um, so, you know, that, that can have some bad effects. Uh, one, you, you know, if a company has an ulterior motive for, building a standard. Uh, for example, they have intellectual property on a standard. Um, you know, that, that can chill the industry if they start charging licensing fees for that, for example. Um, 
And, you know, it can be also bad for those companies that put in all that effort, right? So uh, a lot of open source projects, um, you know, some companies have a business model for contributing that open source code to the community and that business model ends up not working out, right? Um, Bluetooth with uh, Ericsson as their founder is a good example of that, right? So Ericsson put all this time into building Bluetooth they don't build any Bluetooth products anymore. <laughs> so that really didn't go that well. Um, so Web3 introduces the concept of, of a token where the token can be seen as taking a share in some communal infrastructure. So in the case of Bluetooth, if there was a token that was running Bluetooth, Ericsson, even though they didn't make any Bluetooth products in the end, uh, they could hold a chunk of those tokens that would go up in value. So the token element of Web3 solves the tragedy of the commons problem, just like, you know, investor shares and common shares and preferred shares did for startups uh, back in the 60s and 70s when they're starting to create that, that mechanism. So, I mean, I, I don't want to be, you know, contrarian on, on this because I think the point you're making is, is very valid, and certainly a lot of the people directly involved in the standards efforts, the engineers that are putting in the work, may have that kind of attitude. But it's also true that in in a number of these technology standards groups, that a relatively small number of relatively large players don't actually mind doing the lion's share of the work because, quite frankly, they think that they'll make more progress and have the ultimate outcome be more aligned to their particular interests. And the marketing cover they get by the fact that there's a lot of hangers-on uh, is good, as well as that the market will adopt it much more quickly because, ostensibly, there was some large number of players involved in the, in the creation of, of the standard and, and its test frame and all that kind of stuff. So... How do we think through that this this idea that you can kind of tokenize the value is is interesting? The idea of intellectual property, you know, most most standards organizations that I've been involved in have drawn very clear lines about uh, you know fair non discriminatory practices and having pretty IP free sort of standards. And if there is IP standing in the way, that we'll we'll architect around it. We'll build the standard around the the contaminating IP, because everyone knows that a contaminated standard isn't going to succeed in the marketplace because it's a, it's an unreasonable tax and it just won't get adopted. So there's there's a few kind of market controls on some of that stuff. Yeah. But once again, there is this this nuance that you can't always apply the open source of individuals, tragedy of the common sort of model to the the frank pragmatic reality of how probably even most of the core technology standards actually get built in the real world. Yeah, it, it depends on what you're trying to do, what the, what the standard is. One example that I'd like to point out is, is decentralized identities in, in the W3C. All right, so that, that project's been going along for a long time. Uh, even before Web3, there was the concept of decentralized identity. And that organization had some wonky governance where some individuals had all the power to make a decision on what becomes a standard or not. And there were also some very big players in that organization, the browser manufacturers, that also happened to be your decentralized entities. 
So there was this disincentive to come to the right decision on on a decentralized identity standard. So if you had better governance and perhaps token incentives in that organization, you might have come to a better outcome quicker than what you see now. Now, ironically, that organization went to a better governance model, not because it wanted to, but it was forced to when MIT decided they were going to stop funding the W3C. And I think you'll see better results coming out of, coming out of that organization. So you know, I, I'm not saying that a token is going to solve every single tragedy of the commons issue, but I think it'll improve the way that standards are created. Let's use that example as a, as a stalking horse, because I, I think that's a really interesting case study. The, the concept of digital identity is just so foundational, right? It, it's, it's part of the infrastructure and, 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 and so many things are going to be attaching to it and needing it. And it's also one of those entities that is largely going to be regulated because it's going to be attached to healthcare records and be attached to national identity and interaction with government services and, and citizen rights and a whole bunch of other stuff. So it's, it's an important topic. It also is a topic that so many people have a, a stake in, especially uh, and including governments, but, but also banking institutions and uh, healthcare providers, uh, as well as any number of commercial interests. So there's just a, a huge number of, of varied interests. And uh, while a lot of their interests are aligned, some of them aren't completely aligned. So anyway, it's a really fascinating space that desperately needs high, high quality standardization. So let's put aside the history and all that stuff and how we got here. This is a big foundational building block for the Web3 era. We want to standardize the thing. And so, you know, myself and a group of governments and companies, some sort of core group, comes to to Wivity, comes to, to you, Alfred, and says, as an expert in state-of-the-art Web3 governance, architect how we're going to solve this problem both efficiently and with high quality in the next, I don't know, pick something, we're going to come to a final standard in four years. Like what's, right. what, what's your advice? How, how do we do this? Yeah. So you have to create an organization that will house all of, a lot of this or, or pick another organization that can handle the discourse within that organization. But let's assume that you get that organization set up correctly. Uh, and we can go into what that might be later on, but it's important to follow the process, right? The state-of-the-art industry standard process, which is to begin with use cases. Start with use cases, you start to get the full breadth of the problem set, right? You start to see how identity is used in various applications. And when you do that, people understand, okay, what does the solution need to do to address all these different use cases? One of the issues that the DID standard had is that it focused on a very narrow use case that what people said, you go to a bar instead of handing over your ID and you can just tell, you can just give them some kind of zero knowledge proof or some type of attestation that yes, you are over 21, but you're, you're keeping secret your address, your actual age and things like that. Right. So that, that was a very specific use case, but there are lots of other use cases that can use decentralized identities um, in the NFT space, right? So how do you ensure that an NFT 
created by an artist was actually created by the real artist that you think it's created by, not by some imposter that's trying to take advantage of the, of the artist's reputation. All right, that's, that's a little bit different use case that requires a different solution that the DID standard does not address directly. So when, when you start getting all the use cases on the table up front, now you understand how you can architect a solution. Okay, so step one, we, we solicit and we compile this list, and there are 10,000 use cases for digital identity. Then we organize them into some arch-typical ones because 10,000 is an, an unusable number or an unaddressable number. Yeah, yeah. you, you could start saying, okay, where, where are the similarities? Are they basically the same use case with different variations? Exactly. So we break it down, and we've we've now got twenty archetypical use cases. So now we've uh, so there's and it's just this it's a club, right? It's some small group that's done think tank sort of stuff. Okay, we're a step closer. What's how do we? What's the next stop in the process? What's the next thing we do? The, the next step is to come up with a threat model. And that's not obvious to most people, but how can that use case be circumvented, right? So if I am verifying certain certain part of data, you know, how can somebody else come there and circumvent that, right? How can somebody circumvent KYCs? How can somebody circumvent AML? Uh, it's a very high level model because you don't have solutions yet to do a real threat analysis on, but it's important to understand how something can be circumvented. Um, so in one of the organizations that I'm leading, um, OMA3, OMA3 is working on NFT royalties. Uh, and so NFT royalties are easily circumvented, right? Because when the standard ERC721 was created, they put a royalty feature in there, but they didn't understand how it can be circumvented. And so all these NFT marketplaces now are not are circumventing the royalties, which is causing issues with the creators and their business model. So if they had a threat model and said, okay, well, I'm a marketplace, I'm going to circumvent these royalties, you know, they would have come up with a slightly different solution or a completely different solution to prevent that threat from happening. So it's important to lay that out as once you, you build the use cases. Yeah, well, so, so the people that, that want to benefit from the standard or, or have a business model to, to monetize activity associated with the use of the standard, their interests are not only not aligned, but may actually be quite contrary to a whole group of people that, that want to use the standard, you know, free and clear for all kinds of other stuff and resent the fact that they're paying a tax to someone. So, so how do we, how do we get these different voices to, you know, work together? Yeah. And that's the other aspect of governance where, Governance is not just about structure. It's also about curation. Uh, so you see a lot of organizations where the board is dominated by a certain segment of the industry that has its own interests. And it doesn't have much representation from another set of constituents. So energy or distributed energy is a good example, like solar, right? You have the utilities who have a, their own interests in a way, um, generating power, creating revenue off of generating power. Then you have the distributed energy manufacturers, the solar panels, the energy storage guys, the EV manufacturers who want to sell their energy that they create in a distributed manner behind the meter 
to other participants on the grid, which cannibalizes you know, some of the revenue that utilities are getting. So if you're going to create an, a standards group for energy or make decisions from an energy perspective, you need to have a balance of power between those different industry constituents. And so, and, and then once you have that, then people can form a coalition, then compromise can happen instead of one industry group making industry second, making the decision for, for everyone, everyone else to serve their own interests. Well, that's a really interesting example because I, I certainly in my experience, the, the regulators are an important piece of that equation because they have structured the utility billing rating system to make sure there's an appropriate degree of compensation for the invested infrastructure assets. But they also don't want utilities that are effectively natural monopolies to be able to exert monopolistic pricing. And so they they come in with a, a regulatory framework to try to find the right balance that, you know, it's a different kind of balance, but, but yet another example of this fine art of balancing, which seems to me one of the, the most important concepts in the new governance model in the Web3 era. So you've got all these voices, including, I suspect, in your scenario about energy, the the regulators that 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 perhaps have some interests of their own that they want to make sure are expressed uh, because they represent the government's desire to have, you know, high quality electricity delivery or satisfying, you know, voters' interests or whatever. But at the same time, kind of, you know, want to step back and see if if all the various different other parties can figure out some sort of equation that makes sense for everyone. This is a really complex stakeholder alignment exercise. What's new and special about these this Web3 suite of governance tools that will allow that process to be more efficient and, and more effective than the than what was possible in the past? Yeah. Well, I think a, to- a token aligns interests. Just like shareholders in a company, they always they all want to see the company do well, right? Because then the value of the shares go up. If people are actually owning tokens in an infra- in infrastructure, that helps to align interests and, and do the best uh, for the infrastructure. You're not going to solve all the problems, though. I mean, th- this as far as long as humans have existed, there's been backroom deals and and whatnot happening to to influence an outcome. Sure, sure, but I th- the point you're on is a great point that the concept of a token, the ability to encapsulate something, whether it's a vote or whether it's a representation of value and expose it to market forces that will change the the market value of that thing that is being encapsulated in the token. You know, markets are, frankly, one of the most efficient arbiters or or definers of what value is because they match the people wanting to buy stuff and the people wanting to sell stuff. And so, as well as being able to pay someone something now and then have them realize that value at some later time. So it serves both the longitudinal and latitudinal function. So it's a very powerful, powerful construct. And use in these scenarios, I think, has a tremendous amount of potential. So I can I understand this all theoretically. I'm I'm just I'm struggling to to make it that that last mile, that last kilometer that if I've set up this new organization, we're doing this digital identity thing, okay, we've got these tokens what kinds of tokens are we going to be using 
so that we can run our organization effectively and efficiently. That's the job of the designers, right? The tokenomics experts. If there needs to be some infrastructure that runs a global decentralized identity system, the token should have some utility within that system. For example, a issuer of identity or attesting to somebody's uh, fact in somebody's identity, maybe they have to stake the tokens to prove to the world that they're trustworthy, right? Just like Oracle networks do, right? If I'm an Oracle, I'm going to stake some tokens. And if I'm wrong, you can slash my tokens. Validators do the same thing. You know, I'm staking some some tokens. If I if I mess up, I'm getting my 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 tokens slashed. So each each type of infrastructure has a different it's different goals. And so the tokens can be used in different ways. But creating that utility for that infrastructure is what Web3 brings to the world of public infrastructure and, and decentralization. Yeah, allocating decision-making power to individuals or entities or organizations that put stake or, or have a stake, and it's a real stake, it's a financial stake in, in the outcome. I understand that. Uh, that that makes sense. I, I know that it doesn't quite align to the completely democratic point of view, but, but we're not talking about citizen representation in this scenario. We're, we're talking about getting real work done and... I think that makes sense. The The other interesting dynamic or, or iteration or variation on this theme is the concept of, of reputation. Uh, you know, in a lot of the organizations, including open source organizations that I've been involved in, they're trying to listen to all the opinions, but quite frankly, there are some opinions that are worth more than others, right? And being completely democratic where all voices are heard at the same volume doesn't necessarily get you towards a quality objective efficiently. And the idea that that tokens could be used to define not only stake, but also reputation, and through reputation, having a certain point of view weighted more than other points of view. First of all, does that make sense? And second of all, does does that kind of construct erode collective confidence in the democratic engagement ethos of an organization? It's a tricky problem to solve. So the existing framework that Web3 has adopted where you have a governance token, anybody can buy the governance token, and it's one token, one vote, kind of matches two things together. One, value of the token and governance influence. So you, you see a lot of these issues where People are, you know, in one block, they take out a flash loan, buy a bunch of tokens, drain the uh, treasury, and then they're out, right? Because of that type of mashup. Right. You know, I, but a recent trend in Web3 governance is to move more towards a one member, one person, one vote structure, which is more similar to like, you know, democratic societies and governments and voting structures and con industry consortia, uh, one member, one vote. And then they have another utility token that's used for utility, but it, it's not used for voting or at least the important votes. And so like WorldCoin, you know, Polygon ID, these are all Polygon DAO. They're all, these are new governance structures that are using the, the one member, one vote, which solves some of those issues. Now, the, the flip side of the coin is, okay, so it's, if it's one member, one vote, how do you attribute more weight to some members than others? Or is it fair that somebody who has one token versus somebody who has a million tokens 
has the same weight. And to solve that, you can use different tiers in your governance. So in this consortia have a board of directors tier, that's usually the highest tier in an organization. And you're invited to be in that governance tier, or you, you, you buy enough tokens, or you pay enough membership fees to get into that highest level of governance. So you can invite people who are, have a great reputation uh, within that group to become on that board of directors, and they'll have a little more outsized influence than those who are not a part of that governance layer. And then you can have a tier under that, which makes other decisions, right? Technical decisions, or maybe building specs, or marketing, or, or, or whatnot. Um, so that tiered structure creates the, you know, allows influencers or whales, so to speak, to have a little bit more say than, than people who, who don't. 2023 was very much the year of AI, right? That was kind of what was dominating the news cycle. And I, I suspect that 2024 is going to be similar, that there's going to be some really interesting and even breathtaking breakthroughs. There's going to be lots and lots written about it. It's going to kind of consume, it'll consume the, the, it'll be the zeitgeist for, for a lot of the technology space. Do you see any role for, for AI in this new governance technology? I mean, is there a role for it to play? Yeah, I think, you know, AI can make decentralized governance much easier. How, how so? Decentralized organizations have a deficiency in two areas. One, it's just pure resources, right? People contributing their time to these organizations. Tokens solve that to some extent. But another area of deficiency is experience in running a decentralized organization. Most people are, are more familiar with running a centralized organization, their companies and whatnot. So when you get into a decentralized environment, who has the expertise to run these processes, organize and manage in a decentralized manner versus a centralized manner? So I think that you can train AI to help organizers run a process, right? You can help organizers create documentation that's crucial in these processes. And so, you know, at Alma 3, we're actually working on certain tools that enable this, that use the consortium process, but allow it to be very democratic in terms of who, who can use it, who can, who can run the process. So I think those are the two major areas where I see AI, you know, having a big impact on, on decentralized governance in the future. What about prediction markets? I mean, well, one of the challenges that, that something like a standards organization is going to have is making sure that it's working on the right things for the right reasons with the appropriate amount of resource. It's an insight question. And, you know, you can kind of get to some answers through token-based or, or other means of, of stakeholder alignment, and that's fine. But ideally, you'd like that work to be informed by some high-quality foresight predictions about what's needed and what effect it's going to have. Do you, do you see any role for prediction marketplaces in, in that uh, process? Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's an interesting concept, right? Blockchain is based on cryptography. Quantum computing is coming down the pipe. Let's use some prediction markets to <laughs> predict when quantum, quantum computing can, can break a SHA-256 or uh, you know a, a elliptic curve public-private key algorithm. Uh, and then you could prioritize your work as a standards group based on when things are going to be happening in the world. 
you know, Solana has has based their validator requirements on a future uh, on the fact that costs are going to come down, right? So they said, okay, well, it's expensive to run a validator now, but you know, with Moore's law, you know, it's going to be lower, and so uh, over time, Solana would decentralize because of that. You know, prediction markets can inform that a little bit better, right? So I, I think in that area, prediction markets make sense. There might be a way to use prediction markets to sort of prioritize just based on what the membership wants, you know, at, at any point in time. So I, I, we're part, AMBA3 is a member of another standards organization called the Metaverse uh, Standards Group. You know, they have a list of dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of projects that, you know, they're deciding, okay, what should we work on? Metaverse Standards Forum, sorry. And, you know, maybe you can use predictive markets to sort of gauge which one of these are going to be more important. There's so much going on right now with development of Metaverse AI, you know, all these things coming together to define the Web3 era. And it's it's very exciting, the, the, the prospects. But figuring out how all these things work together and building out, you know, converting them into fundamental infrastructure is going to require a lot of standardization. So what are the most important areas that we need to focus on that we can bring to bear this, this these new governance models? I mean, or, or, or I suppose the other way of asking the question is, where do you expect most of your company's business to be coming from? What what domains, what industries, what spaces in the next five to 10 years? Web3 has only a very small percentage of the use cases that it could address. So a lot of people are saying that, you know, Web3 right now has a product market fit problem. You know, it's this, the same type of speculative, speculative use cases over and over again. I think in order for Web3 to expand into other use cases, Governance has to play a huge role in that. The creating the right governance that attracts attracts the right players and gets people to collaborate in a manner that everybody feels included, everybody has ownership, and they feel that they have the appropriate influence over the project uh, is going to make or break these new Web three use cases. So you know, in the enterprise world, we haven't really talked about that yet. In you know the past 10 years, lots of enterprise blockchain projects have started up. Great use cases, right? Supply chain, you know, trade finance, game-changing use cases. The issue has been the governance. If you are creating a solution as a big player in a certain market, how do you get your competitors to join you to support your solution? And I think that if you do it right, it's possible. If you do it wrong, you get what happened with Trade lens, for example, where IBM and Maersk had to had to had to shut the project down because nobody would join them. I think this is a very very profound observation. the The potential of many Web three use cases in the enterprise space has you know will redefine entire industries, and the potential is is always breathtaking. But we have this problem that there are humans involved in the process. And humans have traditionally had a lot of difficulty doing really high quality stakeholder alignment and consortia activity and collaboration between organizations that are, in many situations are erstwhile competitors is very, very tough. It's difficult. And you know, as, as I've been plotting through in our work, doing research in this space, all the enabling technologies that are going to enable these amazing use cases that are going to, as I said, redefine entire industries, the 
you know, you're right. The, the problem we keep on running into, I mean, yes, there's some platform maturity issues, but we're getting really good at that. We've got transactional privacy frameworks and we've got scaling and throughput, you know, capabilities that the technology side of this, we're getting really good at. We've got systems that can support these really exciting use cases, but we keep on stumbling over the human part, the decision-making part, the ensuring equitable distribution of value creation part. It's really hard. And I think you're exactly right that, that governance is you know, one of the really big problems to solve to unlock the vast amount of potential that is made possible because of all these emerging Web3, blockchain, AI, IoT, metaverse technologies. It's really important work. Do you think we're going to figure this thing out or, or find workable, pragmatic models that while they may not be perfect, they are a, a lockstep, a order of magnitude, a quantum leap better than what we've had in the past? Yeah, I think this, this kind of goes into what's going to happen with, with Web3 governance in the future. Um, and I think what you're going to see is Web3 governance is going to coalesce around certain canonical frameworks, right? So if you're an infrastructure uh, project, you know, you're going to use this framework, framework A, to govern your project. If you're an investment DAO, right, you'll, you'll use the same framework. You'll use a different framework and different processes. What I think will happen is, and this is what we're doing with AMA3 and Lumion and Sunspec, is trying to create that canonical framework that leverages what we know works in industry consortia, integrates a bunch of DAO incentives and mechanics to create something that works for Web3 infrastructure. If we can perfect that over time, then it's just cut and paste, right? So one Delaware corporation looks a lot like another Delaware corporation from a structure standpoint. And, that, and there's a reason for that. It, it works. It's been fine-tuned over time. You know, we're trying to do the exact same thing right now with the organizations that we're working with, leveraging that experience from, from industry consortia from an infrastructure standpoint. I'm not touching the investment clubs. Right. I have no experience in what a governance structure for an investment club looks like, but we do have experience with with into consortia collaboration and creating infra shared infrastructure. So you know, that's what's going to unlock all these new applications in, in enterprise and also in consumer world. Where would I be right in thinking that with all the various different use cases that are in different industries and some of them private sector, some of them public sector, some of them in regulated regulated uh, environments, some of them multinational, multi-jurisdictional in nature, some of them vertical, some of them horizontal. There's all these different configurations. Would I be right to think that there might be some arch types of governance models, some best practices that if I wanted to set up some sort of organization to go and tackle one of these really exciting enterprise use cases that I think is going to be unlocked because of all this cool new technology, that I could kind of go to some sort of decision tree list and say, oh, I'm this kind of organization trying to accomplish these things with these constraints. And then here is the, the best model, the best archetype, the best practice to, to go with. Do we have enough experience and institutional knowledge to be able to gather and, and, and categorize that way? I, I think we do. And I think if we leverage 
what has happened in industry consortia, you also get a level of comfort. So if I go to Fortune 50 companies and say, hey, we're using the same format that MakerDAO has used for their community, we're going to get some blank stares. But if I say, hey, I'm using the same governance structure that the Linux Foundation and Bluetooth SIG and Wi-Fi Alliance use, and by the way, you're members of those organizations already. So, so your lawyers would be okay with it already? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And they know all the intricacies in terms of, you know, oh, we want this kind of board seat. We want, you know, we want to contribute in this way. I actually have a group set up already that can start contributing right away to this organization. Then you start saying, okay, well, by the way, there is a token. And then that have them debate on the, the token issue, not the governance issues. You know, we talked before about how a token unlocks a lot of things for Web3. A lot of these enterprise projects have not used a token, right? And I think that's that's a problem. I think enterprise projects are going to have to integrate a token. Yeah, it'll, that'll be an interesting uh, realignment of thinking that the concept of tokens just has so much baggage associated with it, unfortunately, because there's so many different kinds of tokens and people don't really understand what the vast majority of, of real and potential digital assets are really all about. But we're, we'll get beyond this, especially as there are more and more strong examples of these alternative usages of, of tokens, including governance tokens. And well, it'll broaden our horizons, I, I believe, at least I hope. Yeah, I, I think it'll say, follow the same path as uh, corporate venture. You know, so yeah, the corporations didn't invest in startups in the past. Now it's the thing, right? <laughs> You're right. They, they rec- they, in that example, they, they recognize that having access to innovation and innovative energy and being in the flow uh, had an awful lot of advantages. And perhaps you're exactly right. The same realization will happen and organizations will embrace these new tools and recognize their potential. That's This is absolutely fascinating. And as I said at the top of the podcast, that uh, this is a really important topic that I don't think nearly enough people have spent time on. So I applaud the work that you guys are doing. And we need to get a lot better at this. And we need to have a lot more public discussions about the pros and cons of different approaches. And we need to start compiling examples of situations that succeeded and failed and the reasons they succeeded or failed and lessons learned. And we need to kind of write it all down and organize it and share it. So thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. Any kind of final parting pearls of wisdom or or interesting observations or things that you think that we should all go off and do some deep thinking about? I just think that you know, you and the Blockchain Research Institute are in a prime position to help this discussion forward. So I hope you guys take the bull by your horns and show people how to do governance in the Web3 world, enterprise and consumer. Well, thank you, Albert. Well, uh, okay, great. You're, you're, you're right. And that is obviously a big part of the work. We're doing a lot of active research in this space and look forward to working with, with yourself and in your company and the organizations that you're involved in. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insight and your wisdom with us. And thank you all for joining us for this episode of W3B Talks. You can find out more information about Wivity at wivity.com. That's W-I-V-I-T-Y.com. You can also find out more information about this and many other topics at blockchainresearchinstitute.org. And while you're there, please consider subscribing to our newsletter. I am your host, Doug Heitzman. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and that you will join us for our next episode of W3B Talks.